neglected to mention this earlier, but um, you know, little Henry's great 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 grandfather, or something like that. I'm not sure how many greats exactly, but uh, in his lineage, uh, you'll find one Reverend Taylor, who was the pastor that built the first Congregational Church of Glen Ellen in our first location when we were near Stacy's Tavern. Um, and I think that's a beautiful illustration of investing in the future, you know, which is really what I think this text is all about. I don't know if Reverend Taylor could have imagined that his great-great-great-grandson uh, would be baptized uh, maybe not in the same building, but in the same church and in the same congregation and the ways in which uh, the seeds that he and the congregation in those days planted would grow into what we are today. Uh, Jesus' parable of the talents is an especially strange one. Jesus, as uh, you know, we can see, generally frowns upon excessive wealth or at least the obsessive pursuit of it. Uh, he says that it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. He says that you can't serve two masters, specifically God and wealth. He tells us to give it away. And now suddenly, in this text, Jesus is an investment banker. It doesn't add up. The parable of the talents. Talent is a piece of gold, by the way, worth quite a lot in those days. The parable seems to actually encourage the accumulation of wealth. But if we read it in the broader context of Jesus' teachings, perhaps it is less about simply getting rich and more about stewarding the treasures, the resources that God has blessed us with, whether that's personal wealth or natural resources. Perhaps it's about investing wisely in the future, not just in a lucrative stock portfolio, but in a better world where there's enough of the basics to go around. Perhaps this parable is about the value of thinking ahead and playing the long game. The reading is from Matthew 25. For it is as if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. At once, the one who had received the five talents went off and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made you two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. 
But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the 10 talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When you're as frugal as I am, cheap, some would say, I'd say that's uncalled for, you develop a kind of sixth sense when it comes to buying generic products at the grocery store. My instincts, sharpened by years of trying to save a buck at all costs, can tell me just how much I can get away with without sacrificing too much quality. I mean, the generic meatloaf mix that costs a third of the same uh, name brand product really isn't going to make much difference, right? I mean, it's basically just a pinch of seasoning and a whole lot of salt. Speaking of which, generic salt is just fine, too. You know, Jesus warned us about salt that has lost its saltiness, but if you ask me, it all tastes the same. Some people will say that these are just cheap imitations of suspect quality. They'll say that, I can't believe it's not butter, is no substitute for real butter. To say nothing of the, I can't believe it's not butter knockoffs, which are plentiful. Some of my favorite off-brand names include the poignant memories of butter, and the mysterious, could it be butter? <laughs> then there's the enthusiastic, wow, I totally thought it was butter. And not to be outdone, I came across one brand called Butter from Another Utter. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. Unfortunately, I'm the only person in my house that actually enjoys these uh, generic off-brand products. I took some heat from my kids when I came home from the grocery store last week with a variety of great value branded goods from the Jewel Osco. Great value white bread, great value toilet paper, great value cookies. My older son Ethan sat at the kitchen counter with a look of mild disgust on his face as he looked at the generic Oreos in front of him. This particular brand was called Twist and Shout a vaguely confusing reference to the practice of twisting the chocolate cookie off of the filling, I guess. Dad, he said, lamenting this state of affairs. These look gross. I'm sure they taste the same as the ones you always eat, I replied. But even if they do, Ethan argued, it's great value for crying out loud. Now, I'd anticipated this privileged response, of course, and I was ready with my own retort. And who doesn't love a great value? I went on to explain that this was an investment. If he did like the cookies and I saved $2 a week buying them, then we'd save over $100 a year. I told him that sometimes you have to play the long game. I just want some Oreos, Dad, he sighed. I know, I know, I should just buy the kid his Oreos. Trying to force him to enjoy substandard cookies is a bad investment. 
instead of saving $100 a year, I just threw away $3 on something that no one is going to eat. In this parable of the talents, even Jesus condemns the servant who invests unwisely, hoarding his wealth in a zero-interest savings account. And he commends the servants that play the long game and play it well, making good investments, returning a profit. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus is not a financial advisor. Unless he's talking about giving it away, he hasn't got a whole lot to say about money at all. Jesus is not David Ramsey. But he knows the difference between a good investment and a bad one. And friends, if we're being honest, we've made some pretty bad investments as a society. We have neglected to invest in things like health care and education and sustainable infrastructure. The kind of common goods that help people to live abundant, meaningful lives. Instead, collectively, we invested in the cheap stuff. Cheap plastic. Cheap food, cheap electronics, cheap fuel. We didn't bury our gold, but we buried our heads in the sand, willfully ignorant of the costs incurred by our short-sighted choices. And there are costs. We just haven't been the ones paying them. Truth is, even name-brand products have been relatively cheap for a long time. The international outsourcing of manufacturing keeps costs artificially low paying factory workers in China and the indentured servants that toil in South American sweatshops, pennies on the dollar. Cheap fuel has kept vast supply chains running smoothly across the world's trade routes, but burning all of that gasoline has a cost too, as does industrial-scale manufacturing, and those costs to the biosphere are not factored into the price tag. All that stuff that fills up the shelves at Target and the sprawling Amazon supply warehouses. To quote one economist that I follow, stuff wasn't just cheap, it was artificially cheap. American companies were rewarded for offshoring jobs to countries where things like unions and even basic human rights didn't really exist. The cost of carbon, as it turned out, wasn't being paid at all. And then there were the poisonous effects on the natural world, whether it was water tables or other species or oceans. Who was paying these costs, he asks. No one, really. But one of these days, that bill is going to come due. Maybe it already has. Life is, in many regards, a game of resource management. There are plenty of board games that serve as a, a good metaphor for this. Monopoly, for instance. But just imagine that Monopoly involved Byzantine rules for paying taxes, refinancing a mortgage, and budgeting your utility bills. You'd begin to get a sense for the longest game ever designed. No, I'm not talking about your life. I'm talking about the Campaign for North Africa, a tabletop game about World War II that was published in 1978 and holds the record as the world's longest board game. I don't mean that literally, although the, the game board is nearly 10 feet long. No, I mean that it takes approximately 1,500 hours to play this game to completion. To put that in perspective, if you played it twice a month for three hours at a time, a single game could last as long as 20 years. Oh, and you need 10 people to play it with, too. So good luck finding nine other people with that much time on their hands. But the game isn't just long. It's dense and fiendishly complex. There are hundreds of tiny pieces and dozens of charts to manage. And poor planning 
can lead to disastrous consequences. For instance, if you're playing as the Italians under Mussolini, you have to remember to include a measure of water with your pasta rations so the soldiers have something to cook their spaghetti with. If you forget, your troops will starve and fall into disarray on the battlefield. Talk about pedantic. But even this paled in comparison to the complexity of managing fuel reserves. Every game turn, 3% of the fuel evaporates, gaming enthusiast Jeff Phipps writes. Unless you're the British before a certain date, because they use 50-gallon drugs instead of jerry cans, so instead 7% of their fuel evaporates, he explains. Every turn you go around and make a pencil note of how much fuel you have. The pasta rule is funny, but this is what the game is all about. Just doing tedious calculations all the time. Many of us find ourselves doing just that, right? Doing tedious calculations all the time. We do it when we file our taxes or W-2 forms. We do it when we fill out applications for financial aid during the college admissions process. We do it at the grocery store. A bag of Oreos in one hand and some knockoff brand in the other, trying to decide what exactly constitutes a great value, a good investment. And we make these calculations because resources are finite. Contrary to what most of us grew up believing, we were told that infinite growth is possible on a finite planet, and that gives us a false sense of security. We believe that we could keep doing business as usual forever, producing, consuming, growing, but never paying attention to the hidden costs. In the words of 2nd Esdras, an apocryphal text written 2,000 years ago, but I thought this was interesting. Indeed. Provisions will be so cheap upon earth that people will imagine that peace is assured for them. And then calamity shall spring up on the earth, the sword, the famine, and great confusion. What shall they do when the calamities come? Now that supply chains have broken down, natural gas has been curtailed in Europe, and agriculture is threatened by drought and war, inflation is rising, everything's getting more expensive. Great values are harder to find these days, and some prophetic voices have declared that the era of cheap goods is over. Now, painful as that is, perhaps that's how it should be, because our addiction to this cheap stuff we don't really need is destroying our planet. And rather than consuming a nearly endless supply of clothes and electronics and household products, what if we invested in more sustainable things? like renewable energy and local agriculture and a durable pair of boots that won't wear out. In one of his novels, author Terry Pratchett offers what he calls the boots theory, as policeman Sam Vimes ruminates on the state of his shoes. The reason the rich were so rich, Vimes reasoned, was because they managed to spend less money. Take boots, for example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50. But an affordable pair of boots, which were sort of okay for a season or two and then leaked when the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. Those are the kind of boots Vimes always bought and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing was that good boots lasted for years and years. A man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that would still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time, while a poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots in the same time and would still have wet feet. 
This was Captain Samuel Vimes' Hoots theory of socioeconomic unfairness. This passage sprung to mind as I read this text because Jesus ends this parable of the talents on a similar note. For to all those who have, more will be given, he says, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This line has always troubled me. But I think Jesus is telling us that we reap what we sow. Or to put it differently, you get what you pay for. Cheap investments yield cheap returns. We haven't really invested enough in our collective future. On the contrary, we've borrowed against it in a lot of different ways. And when we borrow against the future, as I recently read someplace, it's like solving hunger by eating your own legs. Sure, you're full now, but what will you eat tomorrow? Life is a game of resource management. And if you're playing the long game, you have to make sure those resources last for a long time. You have to make good investments. So where do we want to invest for the sake of the greater good? How can we invest more sustainably for the sake of the future? As individuals, yes, but also collectively. Not only as a society, but as a church. Where can we invest our energy, and our passion, and our treasure? Perhaps, as Jesus suggests, if we invest our resources wisely, we can even turn a profit. Not only for ourselves, but for our neighbors in need, for all the generations to come. And that, my friends, that is what I call a great value. Amen.